0: This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge of Wharton.
1: Hello, my name is Stephanie Creary, and I'm Assistant Professor of Management at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania, and I'm so delighted to welcome you to today's episode of the Knowledge at Wharton Leading Diversity at Work podcast series, which is focused on taking collective action for racial and gender equity at work. Joining me today are two very special guests. First, we have Dr. Tina Opie, who is an Associate Professor of Management at Babson College and an award-winning teacher and researcher, consultant, and TEDx speaker. She is the founder of OP Consulting Group, where she advises large firms in the financial services, entertainment, media, beauty, educational, and healthcare industries. Her research has appeared in such outlets as O Magazine, The Washington Post, The Boston Globe, and Harvard Business Review, and has been published in multiple academic journals. She's also a regular commentator on Harvard Business Review's Women at Work podcast and Greater Boston's NPR affiliate television station, WGBH. She is co-author of the forthcoming Harvard Business Review book, Shared Sisterhood, How to Take Collective Action for Racial and Gender Equity at Work. Next, we have Dr. Beth Livingston, who is an Associate Professor in Management and Entrepreneurship at the University of Iowa's Tippie College of Business, and has done executive education, speaking engagements, and consulting for companies and nonprofits such as John Deere, Yves Saint Laurent Beauty, Allsteel, and Hollaback. Her research interests lie primarily in gender, diversity, and the management of work and family, Her research has been highlighted in the New York Times, Harvard Business Review, and on NPR, and published in several top academic journals. She is also co-author of the forthcoming Harvard Business Review book, Shared Sisterhood, How to Take Collective Action for Racial and Gender Equity at Work. Welcome, Tina and Beth. I am so delighted and honored to have you with me here today in conversation uh, related to taking collective action for racial and gender equity at work. So before we dive into this fantastic book, I'm hoping that the two of you might help us to reflect on what now is the past two years of, uh, I would say, more intense movement, if you will, towards racial and gender equity and justice around the world. And so I would love to hear, given your expertise in issues of race and gender, uh, I would love to hear more about your perspectives on how these conversations, either in isolation or in parallel related to racial, gender and equity, have manifested around the world. Beth, let's start with you. I feel like for the past decade, there has been this growing
0: crescendo around racial and gender justice issues. We had the growth of movements like Black Lives Matter and Me Too, and those became pretty much household phrases after a while, but two years ago with the murder of George Floyd, I feel like it, it became this reckoning, this escalation of this reckoning. Um, And what's been really interesting as a scholar of organizational behavior and organizational interactions is how people at work started to talk about these issues and how companies started to outwardly communicate about these things. And I think that's for better and for worse, which we can talk about as we go on too. But I feel like it moved. It took many decades to move from this focus on diversity and representation. I I feel like we went from D and I, diversity and inclusion, took a long time to get the equity in there, and now we're hearing people put the justice in there too, which which is very been very interesting. As a scholar of diversity and inclusion, um, I did not t- expect really to see so many business leaders from historically dominant racial ethnic groups, white men, white women, using the terms racial justice racial equity, um, and, you know, whether there have been strides to achieve different outcomes around those things is a different story, but I do feel like the conversations have shifted in the past two years.
2: You. Thank you so much, Stephanie and Beth. That's a, I mean, you said the highlights. The one thing that I might add is I've been surprised by the connectedness. So so I think in the past, many times corporate leaders and business thought leaders would think, okay, that's something that's happening out there. Mm -hmm. It doesn't really pertain to work. Let's not muddy the waters at work and confuse people. Sort of, they would categorize things around racial ethnicity and and racial justice as political speak. Mm -hmm. And so they felt that the boundaries of the organization were not to be ceded by this discussion. But when Amard Aubrey and Breonna Taylor and George Floyd were murdered and others, that bled into the workplace. Mm -hmm. And I think organizational leaders were seeing pressure and experiencing pressure to really dive into this conversation that for a large amount of time, they had been able to comfortably say was outside of the purview of workplaces. And so now they realize that is not the case. It never was the case, but They couldn't even pretend anymore, and I think many of these leaders realized they were really lacking the knowledge, the information, and the wisdom, as well as the relationships to foster effective conversations on this topic.
1: You know, so the three of us, individually and and sometimes in partnership, have spent a considerable amount of time over the past couple of years talking to executives through our various pursuits. Um, and I think one of the things that people often ask me is probably something that they've asked you. So I wanted to, uh, understand how you, how you see the answer to this question. And that is, is, is this real or is this window dressing? these commitments that these companies are making. Um, and how do you know the difference in the work that you're doing? So Tina, we can start with you and then go back to you, Beth.
2: I would like to think that 100% of it was real. This is the real deal. These organizations are changing. But unfortunately, uh, you know, one of the things that I'd like to say is, remember a Blackout Tuesday where all the Black squares went up? I like to say that unfortunately those Black squares weren't replaced with Black faces in mm-hmm. organizations. And so, a lot of it was window dressing. And the way that you can tell is by the outcomes, Mm -hmm. is by the structure. So they may want to keep focusing on things like implicit bias, which is important, but that's strictly about the individual often. Mm -hmm. But organizations who are willing to look at their people process, how processes, how they recruit, how they onboard, how they promote, socialize and pay, and actually make changes. So doing a salary audit by gender, by race, by division, by level, Mm -hmm. and then actually getting those numbers and looking at them. When you see people doing things like that, that's when you know that it's actually real and it's beginning to gain traction. Beth, do you want to, what else do you think?
0: Well, I mean, I, I'm an optimist. You all know this about me already. I, I, I'm, I'm a hopeful woman. And I also would like to think, and I do think that at a fundamental level, we are having different conversations and we know that the way we talk about these things matters, but I don't know that everyone who has, you know, a, awakened an interest in this and, and educated themselves has built the skills to be able to do anything about it. And that's the concern that I've had is I do believe that there are more people who care about these things than there were before. I do believe that there are more white people who care about issues of race that didn't understand before or want to do better. And, and more, I do believe that that's true, but I don't necessarily know that they've been able to, uh, uh, Build the skills to be able to do make the actions that they need to do to improve on these issues, and that's the disconnect, I think, which is the desire to do something and the ability to do something, um, and the understanding that sometimes you have more of an ability than you think, and that is something that we focus on a lot, Tina and I, which is everyone can do something, and you may feel like you're powerless to make change, but everyone can make change within their own sphere of influence, and and focusing on action and accountability for
1: those actions is something that we care a lot about. It's interesting because I think about, uh, the different, you know, leaders and companies that I've spoken to and, you know, some of them are, weren't doing anything right. Versus those who've been doing something for a very long time. And so I find myself, um, that it's easier to be skeptical of those who've been around for a long time and been doing something and haven't really advanced anything, and and to speak to you know what Tina's saying is they haven't really done much by the way of structural or systemic change, thinking rethinking their systems and their structures. Um, I find myself being a little bit more skeptical and and perhaps critical of those relative to like the new people who just jumped in who are trying to figure out. So what does it mean to be an ally? I don't know. What do you all think?
2: I agree with you, Stephanie, in terms of sort of categorizing organizational leaders. There are definitely there's a newer cohort of people who have not been in the workplace for decades, you know, who may be younger, much younger than I am, who I think are saying, hmm, how can I actually do something? myself mm-hmm. how can i work with my team around me and how can i inform the systems that are that make this organization go mm-hmm. that is a different cohort to me than ceos leaders executives who have been in the workplace for decades mm-hmm. who have who managed to completely change the entire system of work when covid hit mm-hmm. but for some reason have been unable to figure out how to do salary audits. That that to me, I think we have to call that out. And I think one of the challenges is because a conversation around, around diversity and justice makes people, you know, we know from psychology that they'll become defensive, which can lead to avoidant behavior. We know that. So we sometimes, I think, tiptoe around what may be actually happening. And I think, you know, People are dying, literally, and they might not be dying in the workplace, but their careers may be in peril because of some of the racism and anti-Blackness that we see in the world. So for me, this is urgent. It's it's so urgent. And I want leaders to hear that. Whatever cohort you may most relate to, something like Shared Sisterhood, the work that you've done, Stephanie, some of the other research that you've done, Beth and I've done, can help you to actually take action. But but I guess the, the thing that I would walk away with uh, or want to leave people with is that action is what we need. And I think it's old to say, I really want to get involved, but I don't know how to. There are so many resources out there. Mm-hmm. Share Sisterhood is a book that can do that. If you don't want to look at anything, Web, go to stephanie's website look at the articles on her syllabus mm-hmm. you can or syllabi and you can find things same thing for Beth. so yeah. you know i think at the end of the day i'm saying let's have some urgency my children are depending upon you as a ceo being equitable and just so please move forward
0: you know, I agree with you 100% on that. And, you know, we, we've had these conversations about the urgency of the moment that we're in and the crisis and, and some people's inability to see this as the crisis that it is, which is is a problem in and of itself. And I want to say two things about that. The first is, I do think that there are people who are very... Willfully ignorant about their power. Oh, I can't do anything when you can restructure the entire business at, at the snap of your finger if you wanted to and did in March 2020, as Tina as Tina mentioned. And, and I think that there is, you know, a that I think breeds a lot of cynicism in those of us who study and care about organizations because we see people deny their abilities and their power a lot, and it becomes frustrating. I also think to Tina to your point that we are in a crisis moment. And sometimes people will, (laughs) will say that they're making reasoned, um, you know, not reasoned, smart, not emotional decisions. We're making rational decisions. We're going to gather all the evidence and we're going to strategize and we're going to do, and this is the way we want to see ourselves. We are making rational decisions and we are not emotionally involved in this. And, Will say, well, I don't know if this solution is going to work. I'm going to wait till there's more evidence. And you see this all the time, right? Um, And I want to push back and this is weird for an academic pushing back on this, but I think that if we were going to wait to pilot every possible solution to this problem Mm -hmm. and wait until we had 10 years of data on its efficacy on all these metrics, no one would ever do anything because it's so contextual. And I think sometimes if we admit that it is a crisis, which I think we should, then we should be trying lots of things with the humility to evaluate and to be agile as we evaluate these solutions as they're on in the organization. We shouldn't be waiting to have the definitive proof that this is the answer that's going to fix equity. We should be trying all the things we can to improve equity because this is a crisis moment, because it requires all hands on deck. And that urgency I absolutely do not see at the level I would like to see.
2: I think the reason we don't see that urgency is because for some people, it's a problem, but it's not a problem that personally resonates with them. Because if there was a revenue crisis, they would be trying all different kinds of products and service configurations and and interviewing customers and trying to figure out what do we need to do to realign our business so that we can generate the necessary revenue. Why? Because they know that at the end of the day, their salary, their reputation is on the line, but it seems for some reason it is still a them problem. Even the most, quote, big hearted and, you know, in uh, Dr. Jana, she differentiates between the term ally, accomplice, and Mm -hmm. co-conspirator. And, you know, an ally is someone who believes in equity in theory, Mm -hmm. but they're not necessarily going to sacrifice anything. An accomplice is someone who's willing to sacrifice something, but it's on their terms. Mm -hmm. And then a co-conspirator is someone who is willing to sacrifice something and is also attuned to what the members of the historically marginalized group want so that they'll be willing to put their social capital at risk to benefit those people. So so I think many people are allies, Mm <laughs> They're allies in that they think, okay, I believe in justice in theory, but I'm not about to get paid less. I'm not about to spend more money on this, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that that is sort of at the root of many of the issues that we're the delay that we're talking about. It's an identity issue. Us versus them, and I think it's also sort of uh, an identity issue relative to what pe- what they're calling themselves, what they're labeling themselves, and then what that means they're willing to do in the workplace.
1: So there's three things that, that, that the two of you mentioned um, individually, but I think in in collaboration with one another in your dialogue that I want to pull out as we begin to dive more deeply into the tenets of your book. And, and one is this notion of you know Beth, you were saying you know maybe it's sort of odd for for myself as an academic to to sort of push back against gathering enough evidence, but uh, I actually don't think it's odd because we experiment, right? We we experiment because we have a hypothesis yeah. that something might work. And then we see, does it actually work? So what would it look like for organizations and individuals to be willing and to be brave enough to engage in experiments and seeing um, how and if it works without knowing whether or not it's going to. So embracing the uncertainty. And then the other two things I think in, uh, that you're bringing up, Tina, is this notion of uh, the identity and the power stuff. Or otherwise known as the, what's in it for me. Um, and how do we move people from thinking solely about what's in it for me to what's in it for us? And what does that look like? And I do know, having listened to earlier versions of your ideas on Shared Sisterhood in this book, um, that some of that is baked in there. So let's talk more explicitly about your book, Shared Sisterhood, How to Take Collective Action for Racial and Gender Equity at Work. Um, so what's the premise of the book? And what do you think it teaches us that we might not already be thinking about? Tina, do you Want to start?
2: Sure, sure. So, shared sisterhood is a philosophy that Basically, it helps organizations become less racist and sexist in particular, but more generally, it's an opportunity for organizations to become more just in any number of ways. And it's based on two core practices, the practice of DIG, which is about surfacing your own assumptions about, let's say, race or racism, and Bridge, which is about connecting with people who are different than you. And the, the, I mean, we can we can get into the history of it. Literally what happened is we're looking around the workplace and we're saying, hmm, why is there so much, if there's so much uh, agreement, if we're all in this together, if feminism is real uh, in particular, I was wondering why are black and white women, more connected and working together, Mm -hmm. which then my husband is a history professor, Dr. Fred Opie. I started to read some of his books or history books about the workplace and quickly began to see that there was a lack of trust. There was a lack of trust between people who were different. And I I tried to write this, but I really couldn't, it didn't quite gain traction. And I realized that if I was going to try to come up with a philosophy and a framework to help people see ourselves as us versus them. I couldn't do it alone. I needed somebody who was different. And the, so I remember emailing Beth saying, Beth, hey, I have this paper on the shelf and it's, it's good. There's something there, but can you help me sort of flesh it out? And together we've realized that if we're going to talk about shared sisterhood, this idea and this philosophy of helping everyone advance towards justice, we needed to do it together.
0: I was so excited, Tina, when you reached out to me about this idea because I've been, I've cared about this issue for a long time. We've talked about it. We've had conversations and meetings. And how many academies have we had, Academy of Management meetings, have we had meetings about, right, how do we improve diversity, and equity, inclusion issues at work? And what I liked about this is I feel like it's a, I mean, we just talked about optimism. I feel like it's a radically optimistic book. And the reason that I think it's radically optimistic is because it says, we are not just going to detail what the problems are around you know racial exclusion at work and racism at work um and the history between the mistrust between black and white women in the united states in particular we are going to tell you some things you can do about it and that to me is is radically optimistic it is not just talking about the problems it's it's talking about a solution and that for me was groundbreaking because i feel like Perhaps for so long, I was waiting for other people to tell me, well, what's the solution to this? And I'm saying, no, I'm not going to wait, right? We're going to do the thing that I am always wanting other people to do. And we're going to step into that, that brink and do it ourselves. And for me, it was a wonderful opportunity to be part of the solution to these issues that I care about.
2: And Stephanie, one other thing, it does build... So shared sisterhood builds from positive psychology. And so, you know, there's you're familiar with the work on high quality connections, Jane Dutton and Emily Heafy and John Paul Stevens. So those are some of the doctors who have advanced that thinking as well as Dr. Laura Morgan Roberts. And you've done some work. We really wanted to look at what would it look like if we built a community of sisters. And there's another. So I'm trying to give you the history and squeeze everything in in five minutes. But we intentional. I mean, we intentionally used the term sisterhood, and we were critiqued about that because people would say, "Well, people who don't identify as women might not. This might not resonate with them." And we were like, "Well, good, because we want you to think about why the term sister." causes you to bristle. And it's because there are these masculinized notions of what professionalism and success in the workplace looks like. And we wanted to to flip that on its head Mm -hmm. so that we're emphasizing trust and Mm -hmm. empathy, risk-taking and vulnerability, instead of competition and aggression and a zero-sum game. Mm -hmm. So back to your earlier question, you know, Heather McGee has this great book where Mm -hmm. she looks at, uh, this called The Sum of Us, where she looks at this idea that if we could figure out this us versus them so that we're talking about we, Mm -hmm. It also it it also relates to that notion of how if we do work together, Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, those CEOs and executives who are reluctant to actually address this issue of justice, the irony is, if they were to dive into it, they would see that the pie expands. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: We all eat more. Yes, you may have a smaller. You may have instead of ninety five percent, you may have fifty percent. But fifty percent of a million. Is a lot more than 95% of 100. So hello, let's just figure out how we can work together pragmatically and optimistically to move ahead.
1: Yeah, I think one of the things that I always try to teach my students, so I teach both undergraduates and, and MBA students at the Wharton School. And you know, when you become a manager, your, your job is not just to think about your own individual success and achievements. Um, as being the things that you directly do and the things that you directly gain, it's understanding that um, collective success and well-being is a very important metric in any organization. And that can be gained, it is gained through other people's efforts as Mm -hmm. well. And so when we think about uplifting people who are not us, whether that's somebody else who is not me or somebody who doesn't look like me. We understand, even though it's hard to see sometimes that indirectly that does enhance our ability to achieve because when we all have the capacity to contribute, we all win. And and that's such a hard thing for so many people to embrace, but you know, our scholarship has said this. And I'll say,
0: you know, to, to both of your points so much of our language on this. We started out this conversation talking about conversation and language and how we're shifting and and talking about these things is so transactional. It's so what can I get out of this situation, out of this relationship? Even the way we talk about networking, it's very very one-sided and self-serving. It's, well, I need to build this connection to help me do X. Mm -hmm. But to your point, it's helping us. We're starting to shift that conversation away from what will help me to what will help us and to building that umbrella that describes who us is. And I think that is one of the things we want to shift in this book is to say, we talk about, you know, the, we talk about old boys networks. We talk about these ideas of, of the business case of X, Y, and Z. And we do that, to try to speak a language of business, Mm -hmm. a language of competition, a language of dominance, a language of I get mine. And we don't have to talk that way about people, about relationships. Mm -hmm. We can talk in ways that's transformative and transformational and relational and connected and not about, well, I only want to connect with this person because it will help me get ahead, but rather I want to connect this person because we have shared values. And
1: we, we want to build something real and authentic. Absolutely. So let's, let's build on this idea of the outcomes, uh- as also including the we or the us. Uh, you have this, we started to unpack it a little bit. Perhaps if we can summarize it, you guys have this great framework. Um, I'll just summarize it as dig, bridge, and advance. Can you summarize that for uh, us to help us understand? Because that's like the key mechanism, if you will, that's going to drive this collective um, gain, you know, this collective sense of equity. Uh, okay, so Beth, do you want to start? Yeah. <laughs> you join in? Yeah,
0: so... DIG, shared sisterhood is a multi-level approach. And that's something that's unique to this. It's not just focused on the individual. We start with the individual with the practice of DIG. But this philosophy moves us from this individual practice of dig, in which you dig into your own preconceptions about race and power and those sort of structures, and you build relationships. And the bridge practice is about building connections interpersonally with other people. Mm-hmm. Then the advance, or what we like to call kind of collective action around advancement with the goal of equity, is about taking those interpersonal relationships that you've worked to build that are only possible because you've done the dig work, because you've dug into your own preconceptions about that, that you then are able to layer those interpersonal relationships with other people to grow them out like a web and to build these, these really, these, these, connections that are, have high tensile strength, right? They're strong, like a spider web. You know, you can put so many, so much weight on them that you're able to lift the group up towards equity. You can rely on one another. You can sit in a room together with someone to, to negotiate for salary. You can build on one advance and build another advance and bring people on together. And I think that's what makes this, you know, we have a lot of conversation about collective action, but that's what we're trying to do is we have to work collectively. We have to work together to achieve equity. And so this multi-level approach of shared sisterhood is meant to recognize that, that equity is not a something that I can do on my own. Mm-hmm. Right. It's not something that two people can do together. It's mm-hmm. something that begins with me and moves to we in, in a in a very systematic way with practices we can learn.
2: And I would say, I mean, for, for people who are listening, the kind of questions that you might ask yourself when you're going through DIG, you might literally say, what is race or "What does the term racial ethnicity mean? When was the first time that I became aware of my own racial ethnicity or race? How do I feel about that? Have I learned about other people's racial ethnicities? What are the stories behind that? Yeah. And what are my opinions? What are my honest opinions? You know, I share stories about how I have stereotyped other. People groups that I'm not a member of. Mm-hmm. And I, we like to lie to ourselves that we don't have these biases. But, you know, I say they're like birds. They will fly through your mind. Just don't let them nest there or, or, or crap on you. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and, and so those are the kinds of questions you might ask for Dick. Bridge is about, and, and as Beth said, these interpersonal connections—they're authentic. And I don't mean authentic in the in the buzzwordy, obnoxious way that I think the term has come to be used. <laughs> we defined authentic again as when you can ex- when you can trust each other,
1: mm-hmm. when
2: you can take risks on each. These- on behalf of each other, when you can empathize with each other Mm -hmm. and when you can be vulnerable with each other. Mm -hmm. And when you, and it's an iterative process. So Mm -hmm. for example, when Beth and I first started bridging with each other, I didn't trust Beth. Mm -hmm. I didn't know Beth. And I was sort of suspicious uh, in academia. I'm like, who is this white woman? I I don't know her. And then we found out that we both knew Charlotte, Dr. Charlotte Hurst. And I said, okay, Charlotte is down. Let me call her and ask her. And then we could begin to trust. I mean, for real, I could begin to trust her. And then we began to go further and further in that relationship. So when a but we, I had to, I tried to bridge with Beth or she tried to bridge with me. It didn't go that well. I had to go back to dig and ask myself, why are you tripping over Beth? Beth seems like she's a decent person. What is going on? And I had to unpack the fact that I had been stabbed in the back by so many white women in the workplace that when I saw this white woman come, she, I mean, Beth, you know, and I'm practically skipping up to me, I, I was distrustful. So I had to address that. If I had been unwilling to to do that dig work, Uh I would have missed out on a beautiful sisterhood, which we have, you know, 10 years later, 15 years later. And then collective action, advance, is very much focused on metrics and actual systems. Uh It's it's much less about why I don't think that this person I'm surveying should receive XYZ to me looking up at the systems and saying, Let's look at how people are being paid at an institutional level and what are the data saying? Yeah, So I hope that helps encapsulate the model.
1: It does. And I love this story because I think it it sort of resonates sort of with my own experiences, not of Beth, but of other people (laughs) who do not share my racial background. And I also have known both of you each individually for a very long time. So I could imagine um, how that that initial interaction went. And I'm so grateful that it's worked as well as it has. Okay, so... I want to talk about data. We've talked about data quite a bit in terms of, like, sometimes you just need to go with what you have, and sometimes, you know, it's not the best, but it's sufficient to begin to take action. I want to know about, like, as you all were thinking about this book and knowing the two of you, there's a a cadre of stories and other data that maybe you keep coming back to when you're trying to tell people about what's in this book. What's the, what were some like data points, whether it's a story or whether it's sort of something numerical or some trends, um, do you find interesting? um, And that perhaps you keep um, thinking about and and wanna continue to consider going forward. All right, Tina, do you wanna
2: start? Well, definitely the story I just told you about Beth. Yes. I mean Beth and I tell I mean it it's it, it's it's sort of a case study mm-hmm. of shared sisterhood mm-hmm. because it we literally followed the dig bridge and now shared sisterhood the book is our step towards collective action. Yeah for, for society and workplaces workplaces writ large. We also I love the story of joy in the book. Joy is um a real person, not her real name. It's a pseudonym. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a really good opportunity for people. She's an example of a bull in a China shop. Mm-hmm. Someone who really thought that she, she was earnest and she thought she was right. And she forged her head and she did a lot of damage. Mm-hmm. And we sort of explain what happened Mm-hmm. And then we explained how she could have improved. Mm-hmm. And I think by using those realistic stories, that can be helpful. And then we also have conversations about organizations that have implemented some of the steps that we've talked about mm-hmm. and been very successful as well. But I don't want to talk for the rest of so Beth. What, what are some of the stories that come to your mind?
0: One thing I like about what we do in this book, Stephanie, is we try to, and we have hundreds of end notes at the end where we're citing a lot of research, but we're also bringing in a social science and a, and a history perspective as well, where we're talking about relationships and history. One of my favorite stories we talk about is a story about Ida B. Wells um, and about the women's suffrage movement, because as Tina mentioned, she started this journey by really looking into history. Why do we have some of this mistrust between white women and black women in the United States. And it goes very far back, but there are still some wonderful stories about women who, who modeled shared sisterhood before shared before any of us, well, before any of us were born. And I think those stories where you saw white women demonstrate their vulnerability and take risks on behalf, behalf of their black women compatri compatriots, I think is really a, a, an important story, and that historical story of Ida B. Wells and two white women that for women's suffrage back in the early 1900s, we see echoed in stories that we pull through today. There's a story. Um, Sadal Neely just wrote a wonderful um, case, business case about um, Timnit Gebru, who is a uh, was an ex- a manager at Google and now. Has her own firm um, working on artificial intelligence and ethical AI. And her story is. There's so much to it. And you can read a number of articles about it. We pull out parts of the story to demonstrate that in this organization, there were two women who were casualties of this event that happened a year ago, Um, a Black woman, immigrant woman, Timnit Gabru, and a white woman, Margaret Mitchell, who Mm -hmm. co-led this ethics and AI team and worked together to try to make their team more equitable, their organization more equitable. Um, And you see evidence of all of the things we talk about with authentic connections, of empathy the vulnerability, um, um, trust, and risk-taking. And you still see it in their interactions today. It's, uh, and it's a story, I think, that we like to say that Shared Sisterhood is about not just outcome, but process. And this may be a journey where you're taking two steps forward and then a step back. But the, the point here is that these connections, when you build them in these authentic ways, can sustain through setbacks in the outcomes. And can get you further than if they were just these tenuous connections that if you face a failure, they're going to fall apart. And both of those women have now gone on to be leading organizations in artificial intelligence and starting and leading conversations around equity in that area that are necessary and are creating change in in that way. And I think those are some stories that are very intriguing and motivating for me.
2: I don't know how I could forget Ada B. Wells because... Ida B. Wells is connected to Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. And you you have to read the book to find out how. Or Stephanie, are you gonna kill me? Do I need to tell you?
1: <laughs> it's okay. You can leave it as a cliffhanger. Ooh, yeah. I and like I mean, you know,
2: it. And, and then we also talk about Ava DuBarnay mm-hmm. and what she's That's doing. Right. I mean, we talk about there are so many good examples mm-hmm. in the book. But anyway, we'll we'll leave a cliffhanger.
0: And and I'll say also, in terms of the data that we're pulling from our stories, you know, Tina said, of course, our anecdotal relationship, but Anecdata is really important here because a lot of this shared sisterhood framework has been developed through Tina's work with individuals, Mm -hmm. right? With people who care. And my work with small groups and organizations for people who want to be better allies. They want to do work better. And you know, this is these are not people who are going to say, yes, please put my real name in a book so I can talk about Mm -hmm. my racist my journey from racism to enlightenment. No, that's not where a lot of people are at this point in time. But we have so many individual examples that we were able to pull from in in unique and interesting ways through the book that of people who have been, who are enacting this right now, today, who are running those experience experiments within their own organizations and saying, I'm going to do something and I'm going to put my own social capital on the line and my own human capital on the line to make my workplace different. And we're seeing it every day. And yeah. that I think is very exciting that you're getting this book, not 10 years later when we can report on everything, but in the moment yeah. where we hope that people are able to engage in shared sisterhood and report back to us we say that in our final chapter we're like please tell us your stories do Mm -hmm. this now and come and tell us we want to have a dialogue with you because again it's meeting the moment that we think we're in
1: so it's interesting about this is um, you use the word panic data i hadn't heard that before i love it i love it panic data I also think about stories. You know, you all spend, you do spend a lot of time teaching people things. And while people really love, you know, to see numbers and trends, they really love to hear the stories. So I'm so delighted that you have a lot of stories, people's experiences in there, the richness of that. Because I think then people can see themselves um, in your data um, and they could see how this pertains to them wherever, from wherever they're coming. Um, All right. So I've got one last question. And it sort of takes us back to where we started and certainly where your book fits nicely um, into this conversation is... if we, you know, we can lean into the skepticism or not, but there's certainly been a lot of musings uh, amongst our community of academics and certainly amongst people who are in organizations, you know, practicing, working every day and certainly in the media around whether these commitments to gender and racial equity, whether these are going are just the moment um, or whether they're going to wax and wane, depending on you know, whether we um, as scholars or certainly the media, can keep these things visible in people's heads, hearts. Um, So I'm interested in knowing what you want to remember 10, 20 years from now about this moment in time. It it is a moment, but certainly hopefully it'll last longer. Um, What do you want to know? What do you want to remember 10, 20 years from now about this moment in time? And then certainly anything else that you'd love to share uh, before we close? All right, Beth. I, I feel like this moment
0: feels very overwhelming. (laughs) And I, I think that's because I don't know if it's because there are more things happening now or that I'm more aware of them. And I have more bandwidth to be able to understand all the things that are going on in the world. And I think part of being an academic sometimes is being overwhelmed that there's so many questions left to ask and still so few answers Mm -hmm. from those things. But I think that's one of the things I'm very excited about, about this book is that we're providing an answer. We're doing the thing that I have wanted to do as an academic for a long time, which is not just not just tell us what the next questions are, but begin to provide answers in this moment. And I think that's what people need and what people want. Um, We focus on this very basic need for connection and belonging that research suggests is so critical to human psychology. And I hope that if we're looking back on today, we'll see bits of light in the darkness and, you know, these, this moment of possibility of growth that we can take all of the dead underbrush and use it as compost for this, this future um, that, that we can build and we can do. And I, I think there's so many of us who want these things. I really do believe that. And Maybe people need to be more brave. They absolutely do. Maybe people need to be more educated. They absolutely do. Maybe some people need to be pushed. They absolutely do. Um, But I'm hopeful that this book can give people more concrete steps to help them break through whatever those roadblocks are that are preventing them from doing the work towards equity, whether it's a lack of trust in our coworkers, our feeling that our workplace isn't safe, Enough for to for us to engage with one another the way we want to, because I do believe there's true strength and connection, and I think those of all three of us here on this podcast are, are evidence of that. That there is strength and connection, and we can change things. And I hope that this is a beginning and not and and not a harbinger of worse things to come, but a harbinger of better things. Absolutely, Tina. What are you thinking?
2: I am hoping that in 20 years we can look back and see that Shared Sisterhood was an inflection point because people use the book as a mirror to make an honest assessment of themselves as well as their organizations. And they wholeheartedly embrace the skills and the tools and they apply them. So that when my children's children, in 20 years, when my children's children, maybe not, apply to these jobs and these organizations, they'll be like, Wait a minute, there's a salary audit, gender and race. Those issues, they, they still matter, but not like they did, Mom, when, when were you guys? Were you guys like in the Stone Age or something? Because it is so much more equitable here. And we have CEOs who talk about this, but they also walk the walk. And it's evident in the culture of the organizations that they truly believe this. So that's what I hope will happen, that this, will, this is a, an inflection point
1: for equity. So I hope what will happen in 10 to 20 years from now is that each of us, and especially the two of you will remain engaged in this work and as passionate about it then as you are now. Um, it is not easy pressuring or pushing people to, to, to talk about things that they don't want to. It's not easy, I think, coming up with insights in new and different ways that convince people um, that this is a, a, a worthy topic of study, but also of practice. And so I am hopeful, I should say, I am hopeful that the two of you will be on book three, Shared Sisterhood, at least book three by then. Um, maybe, you know, a whole series of things, but I just wanted to say, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Tina Opie and Dr. Beth Livingston for joining us today. Um, Your insights um, are are so meaningful and important and necessary, and your expertise is absolutely unparalleled. So thank you for sharing those with us. Uh, To everyone else, please get your copy, pre order your copy right away. Um, The book is called Shared Sisterhood, How to Take Collective Action for Racial and Gender Equity at Work. It's available through all the online resellers, re- retailers, booksellers. Um, but, uh, thank you so much for joining us today and listening to this episode of the Knowledge at Wharton Leading Diversity at Work podcast series. Goodbye for now. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.